Okay. Uh, welcome back, everybody, to the Upon This Rock podcast. Uh, my name is Max Thomas, and joining us today is uh, the most famous and requested guest in niche theological podcast history, Dr. Chris Green. Chris, oh, that's, that's, very... a, that's a claim to fame if there yeah, ever has there been. There it one. is. This is only the uh, number 987th ranked podcast in Christian spirituality, and you are the first time. Uh, uh, second guest coming back. So congratulations. You can put that up on your wall next to your yep, PhD, I your, will. your new ordination papers. Congratulations That's on right. that, by the way. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Thank you, yeah. I, I watched, it. I actually got a chance to watch that, which was uh, fun oh, cool. for me. Yeah. So, uh, so we're doing this, I'm doing this series right now. This will be the last one actually in this series um, called the Inigo Montoya's. Are you a princess bride uh, follower? I am. Okay. Um, my, this is one of the, for movies my wife required me to watch with her okay yeah okay so, so yes in in the movie you have um the character who continues to use the word inconceivable and then you get the famous line that you keep using that word but i don't think it means exactly what you think it means so these are the inigo montoyas these are words that people use that i don't think they mean what they think that it means and um so we've talked about hell with brad jerzak that was a lot of fun i know you know brad yeah yeah. Um, we did, I did a couple on wrath, heaven, uh, revival. And now today I want to talk about the word power and to cheat a little bit, the power of God. I know that's not a single word, but we'll, we'll sneak it in there. Just hyphenate it. Power just, of God. There you go. Or just quotation or something like that. And it'll, it'll count. Yeah. Um, so I want to have a conversation about the power of God, what we mean by the power of God. Um, what I think most people think about, at least in our circles, charismatic Pentecostal evangelical circles, surely the one that you and I both grew up in, when I hear power of God or think about power of God, or when someone talks about God's power, what I think if I could cap encapsulate it in a single story, I think it's kind of like the Isaiah 6 um, I saw the Lord high and lifted up and everything was shaking and there was fire. And it's just this sense of raw energy that can do whatever God wants to do. Yeah. That God's power is his ability to get done whatever it is that he wants to get done over and against anything else. And, and typically, I think when we think about that, most people, their brain, again, in our circles goes to miracles healing yep. uh, the such um I, I guess i'll just softball it to you tell me why i why that is a uh why that definition is i don't think that word means exactly what you think it means that doesn't mean that um we'll just start there and, and then we can see where that goes yeah it's it's difficult to talk about well I mean, I'm not sure I can do it. I know I can't do it as well as I would like to. I'm not sure I can even do it adequately. There are places in Scripture that that do, that connect the miraculous to the to power to to God's power. So it's it's not that that connection is never made in Scripture. I don't think it can be reduced to that though. And in our tradition here, the Pentecostal Charismatic tradition at large, I, I think there were in many ways, good reasons for making that connection, right? I mean, so if you remember, the movement is emerging in part as a reaction against what, what scholars would call modernity, right? So the, the rise of 
the mindset that the world is closed and reality is, you know, fully open to scientific explanation. And it, it, if you, you know, if you read the enlightenment philosophers and post enlightenment philosophers and the, in the kind of the cultural moment was a moment of miracles are not possible. Like by definition, they're not possible. And, God is a hypothesis we do not need, right? I mean, that we, our lives make sense on their own terms. And so there was a kind of quote unquote prophetic pushback against what some people have called the disenchantment of the world, right? That the, the world was drained of mystery by the scientific, the rise of scientism and the sciences and that movements like ours and, and their, their parallel elements outside of Christendom, even like, it's not just Christian movements like this movements all over the world. That's touched by colonialism in which is most of the world insisting that, you know, God is still the, the God of mystery, the God of, of miracle. So I don't want to dismiss that out of hand. I mean, I think there's a way in which that was a critical witness against a certain kind of enlightenment presumption about the world again, what we might call disenchantment. All that said, the consequences of focusing on that have been horrific. And because what it reduces to is God is just the power that makes happen these things I can't explain. God gets reduced to the one who does the miracles. And the Christian life becomes a movement from miracle to miracle. I mean, it's a an obsession with the unexplained or the unexplainable and even more. And that's bad enough, but worse than that is once you have this kind of intervention of spirituality, it's easily, it easily turns into expecting God to rescue you from whatever is difficult or even more common. It turns into you earning God's response. So if something's wrong in your life, you need God to do what only God could do, but you have to earn that. Like you have to do what's required via believing intensely enough or fasting or making sure that you're sold out to God, whatever, whatever the boundary conditions are that you have to meet in order for God to respond. And so when, when that gets diseased, it, it, it's, it's a terrible disease. I mean, it, it's a terrible sickness and it's hard to cure for lots of reasons, which we can, you know, jump into or not. But I mean, that's, I think that's where I would, would, would begin. I mean, I, I want to nuance it as much as I can. I don't want to dismiss anything too quickly, but it's a, it's a serious, serious problem. Yeah. I no mean, doubt. we, we can read story after story in the gospels where, I mean, the authors will even just use phrases like, and you know, God's power was present to heal them all. Exactly. Things like that. So yeah, that's what I'm thinking about. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And so you just have to say, yeah, okay, there it is. Um, that, that for sure is, is an element of it, but I, yeah, let's dig into something you just said there that the idea that if, if, if what we think about when we think about God's power, and then we can maybe try and come up with a better way to think about it or a better lens, maybe to try and understand it through. Um, 
But if it's simply God's ability to do what he wants to do that you can't explain or get done any other way, it does really force you. And I think you see this for sure in kind of the, the, the revival movements of today, kind of the neo-charismatic movements of today, um, who will just come out and say some of them, um, you know, God wants to heal all the time, every time yeah. without exception, you have to chase after chase after Absolutely. miracles. If God's not doing something in your life like that, now go somewhere where it is, Yeah, get that anointing. And it, you, they, this starts to become all this kind of like insider Absolutely. language, insider language, right? But it really is miracle hunting. It's miracle, it's Absolutely. miracle chasing. And, and the irony of it is, I think, that's not real life for most people. Most, most people don't yeah. see God doing those things often. And so you have one or two options. I, I think you can either try and broaden your definition or the easy thing is to say exactly what you just said. Either something is wrong with you and you need to, to figure something out, believe harder, pray more, all that kind of stuff, whatever. Um, or, or we can't, I, I'm thinking of one, one pastor out in California who, who will say this, that we can't ever lower our yeah. standard of yep. expecting miracles down. You probably know who I'm talking about. I know exactly who you're talking about and what you're talking about. Okay, yeah. sure, sure. You can't ever, we can't ever lower our standards of who God is and what God does down to our own experience. Right. right. And so if just because you don't see someone get healed doesn't mean God doesn't want to heal them or doesn't mean that God doesn't heal, doesn't mean whatever. And there's like some slivers and grains of truth in that. We, we can't project our own experience back unto God and whatever. At the same time, we like live in a life yeah. Yeah. that we have to make sense out of. I, mm -hmm. I can't live. I mean, what he is asking people to do is essentially live in fantasy land is to live in never never land i think well it, this is the fascinating thing I, I that you raised here and again I, I i'm still struggling for the words i want but i i actually think well let, there's so much i want to say it's it's kind of rushing out of me let, let me back up and say this so yes i agree most people don't see that kind of regular pattern of the miraculous you know we we may a few times in our lives see something miraculous but it's not routine right for most of us but and and i've you know i've heard that lamented all of my life i mean i grew up around preaching that lamented how we do not see the miracles they used to see right, right. I mean, and that, and it, this same guy will will even say like how does he say it like powerless Christianity by powerless. He just means like lack of miracles. Yeah. Lack of it miracles yeah. is not normal. Right. 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 Even though what he means is it should not be normal. It right? should not be normal. Yeah. But, but here's the thing. This is, this is where my mind finally changed all that. Like I was for most of my, even before I was an adult, most of my kind of conscious life, I've, I've realized something's not right about that, that kind of constant insistence on the intervention of God, the, the, inter, the interruption of our lives with the miraculous. But what finally convinced me is realizing 
in the church's history, the people who speak the strongest against that thing are the people who've seen it. So if you read the Desert Fathers, for instance, endless references to you know, demons and exorcisms and visitations of angels and, you know, of course, miracles, prophetic words, so on and so on, just endless references to this. And without exception, more or less, I mean, if you can find an exception, I don't know it. Overwhelmingly, they say, this is not the point, that most of this stuff is a temptation. It's not actually the work of God in the first place. So, that's the first thing. If you study the mystics in the Christian tradition, they say the same thing, right? That these kind of out of body, otherworldly experiences, sometimes some of them will say they have their place. They're good if they're kept in these, but many of them will say these are temptations that need to be held at arm's length because they're not, they're not actually making you more Christ-like. They're not actually making you care for your neighbor. So you think of someone like Meister Eckhart, who preaches a sermon about Mary and Martha and says, you know, Martha is actually the mature one, not Mary, because Martha has learned how to pray and work. And that's the goal. The goal is not to be, you know, laid out before the feet of Jesus. The goal is to be able to go back into the kitchen, bearing Jesus in your heart and, and care for your neighbor. Right. Or Teresa of Avila, John of the Cross. I mean, they, again, they're just all bearing witness to this. You know, Teresa talks about when sisters will come to her and tell tell her about all of their consolations, all of their experiences of of God, mystical and prophetic and charismatic. And she 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 just repeatedly says to them, "Oh, that's well and good. We need someone who will wash up when dinner is over, right? Like it's a kind <laughs> of remember what really matters is yeah. the way you take care of your neighbor." Right. And and then if we if we can even jump to someone like the Bloomharts, Johann and Christoph Bloomhart, who are Lutheran pastors who experience this exorcism and then in the Black Forest in the 1800s, and then it just bursts into a revival and it becomes in the second generation, it becomes a, a site for healing. And is that the Moravians by any chance? No, these are Lutheran oh, these are pietists. Lutheran, okay. Lutheran okay. pietists, yeah. Okay. But they, but they, they come to this conclusion that all of that is misleading. I mean, there, and I, I can't quote it off the top of my head, but there's a, there's a sermon by Christoph Blumhart, the son, in which he talks about, you know, this experience we've had here at, in Bad Ball. It is, people are now coming for the wrong reasons. Like they're, they're being drawn to the wrong, wrong thing. They're not being drawn to the, the pattern of Jesus' life. They're being drawn to the miracles. And of course, Jesus himself says this, right? It's a, it's a wicked and perverse generation that seeks after a sign. No sign will be given to you except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Yeah, or, or the, the crowds who came just for bread and fish. You didn't come exactly. for me. You came just because you were hungry and you thought you could get more bread and fish. Absolutely. And so when you start to read scripture with that in mind, you start to realize scripture is overwhelmingly consistent on this point, right? So I'll, I'll give one example. We can do more if you want, but here's here's a, a kind of obvious, unmistakable one, which is Elijah on Mount Carmel. So, you know, I grew up in, in and around Christians who loved that text because it was a text about revival and the power of God. And it was, a, it was also about the culture wars, right? Because it's a showdown with the prophets of Baal. It's a, it's a showdown with the pagans, right? The, the liberals, the liberals. Who, yeah, yeah. 
who need who need to be confronted. And and Elijah does it right. He builds an altar. He invokes God. Fire falls, and revival comes. Except if you read the text, it doesn't at all. Right? There is a moment in which all the people say, "Yahweh is Lord," but it lasts one evening. Right? Like on the following morning, even even at not just the the the, the fire that falls rain comes so they've been in a drought and he opens up the windows of heaven right i mean elijah prays and the rain comes but even that doesn't change anything even for him i mean the very next thing that happens is he flees into the desert afraid for his life and and then that's the end pretty much i mean he he has the encounter with god in the cave which also goes terribly but that's the end of his life more or less and so we read that, I mean, I tribe, people in my tradition, we read that as a story of kind of the pinnacle of ministry. Like this is what ministry strives to be. But the text tells you it was meaningless, really. Like it didn't have any impact on, or at least no immediate telling impact on what the people actually did. And that is true repeatedly, repeatedly. There are instances in scripture where there'll be some kind of miraculous event, either a miracle of judgment or a miracle provision, a miracle of revelation, whatever it is. It, it, it rarely, in fact, I think you could make the case it never works, at least not like we think of it, something working. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can, I, the other one that I was thinking when you started talking was the wilderness generation. Yes. Who, sees fire come down from heaven gets fed every day you know and they obviously clearly still don't believe and and elijah even going back the thing that i always take away from that story when i when i read it too is i grew up kind of in that same stream of thought and then you know he after after the showdown he goes and kills all the the prophets of baal and that's was kind of this celebratory moment. Like, yeah, look, that's at the, the man culture of, war moment. Yeah, right, right. Look at the man. Of, and when you read the text carefully, he's never commanded anywhere to kill it. At least when I read it, it seems like he kind of makes that decision on his yeah. own. Yeah, that's never that's never. And so you get this. Yeah. Hey, look at me. You know, these prophets are cutting their own skin and, and shedding their own blood to try and get God to hear. My God, he, their blood. Yeah. my God hears. And so I, I to justify me shedding their blood. And then yeah. he he runs and hides when someone is coming after him. Um, it's it's and I think that reading is stands up because then when you get to Jesus and the two disciples, they want to, you know, they go into yeah, Samaria, call fire down from heaven, called exactly fire from right. down to heaven and say, hey, they're they're rejecting you. Let's kill them. Just Absolutely. like Elijah killed all those people. And Jesus calls them demonic and essentially calling what elijah did demonic um yeah you, I, you I, that, I, I, I think that's exactly right and, and it's a we don't have to go too far down this road but i do think that's that's part of what jesus specifically is critiquing about their prayer is that they're drawing on the wrong parts of the elijah tradition right they're they're drawing on the wrong parts of the the prophetic tradition which it, it is is a history of failed witness in many ways and and that i think what's sad is that our tradition tends to celebrate what jesus is 
challenging as the failure. Yeah. We see as prophetic the very things Jesus says was false were false sure. to the prophetic. Yeah, and, and the other way around, and then I want to come yes. back to that in a second, but and the other way around, we we like to challenge the things that Jesus seems to not ignore. So there's this great line in in um, Abraham Joshua Heschel when he's talking about Sodom and Gomorrah, his book on the prophets. And he says, the thing I'm paraphrasing, I don't have it in front of me, but the thing that God, the thing that we most detest God is, is minuscule to God. And the thing yes. that is minuscule to us is an abomination yep. is detestable. You probably know it, the quote better than I, I know do. the passage. Yeah. From okay. The yeah. And he's talking about in the Sodom and Gomorrah story, we've made a whole culture war basically about sexuality. And if you read the text carefully, it's actually about their lack of care for the poor and taking care of yep. their neighbor. And we want to make this big deal about sexuality. And that's a whole other conversation we'll table for now. But to God, the big issue is not the sexuality. It's the fact that they didn't, didn't take care of the poor. Well, if anything, if there is a critique of the sexuality, it's the ways in which the sexuality is born out of a disregard for the stranger and the poor. Sure. So the, it's if even if you want to take the, the sexuality as problematic, it's symptom, not cause. Sure. Like, yeah, it's 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 a branch. It's not the root. And and the root of the problem is the disregard for those who are who are strangers in your midst, immigrants and, and refugees and the, the poor and the disabled. So on like it's it's your lack of care for those people that gives rise to a sexuality that preys on those people. Right? Sure. And I, so I think. Again. Like you said, we can table the sexuality conversation, but my point would be, even if you take a quote unquote traditional reading of sexuality in that passage, there's no way to see that as the root of the problem. Right. Yeah, I would agree with that. But, so, so circle back here real quick. Is the, it seems to me that when we define the power of God in terms of only miracle signs and wonders, God's ability to do the things that we can't get done on our own or that we can't explain on our own. It seems to me that that quickly, and this is, I think, what's happening even in the Elijah story, is that quickly becomes something that we, that we can weaponize yeah. and actually say, well, we are on God's side, and so we get to wield this power that is greater than ourselves for our for our own gain and even we think for good cause so i, I recently Absolutely. i recently binged watched the lord of the rings movies yeah. and um there's this constant tension obviously of people who want the ring and they all want the ring in their own mind for good reasons to vanquish evil and to defend their people and they have come to understand i can't do that on my own because my enemy is stronger than me but i have in front of me something that is accessible that can overcome those things and so why don't i wield this power that will do the thing that is the right thing to do and that is kill sauron kill yeah, the vanquish the enemy yeah. vanquish the enemy but what they don't realize is by putting that ring on, even in the name of good, it destroys their own soul and actually collapse. The whole project collapses in on itself. And I wonder if that's actually the one of the root 
issues here of when we define power in that way. And even when we go to a passage like John 6, hey, you're not coming here because of any other reason that you want food and you want to see another sign and you're hungry. You have something that you can't get to on your own. And I'm just the easiest way for you to get that and to explain it and to put a name on it. And in modern terms, we in modern ways, we just put on a conference and invite people to it and and brand it and put it on Instagram and it, we have a movement, right? Yeah. Uh, but it's just us. It's just us trying to get done the thing that we already want to get done. Yeah. Just trying to use a power that is greater than ours because we yeah. realize that we can't get it done. Is that, do you think that's a fair critique? Oh, I do. I mean, I, I think, well, I think it's a fair critique as a generalization. I mean, sure. I think sure. in any particular case, obviously it'll be more complex, but in terms of patterns, yes, I think that, I think that is right. It's, it's a way of resourcing God, right? It's a way of, you know, in the Acts narrative, it's Simon the sorcerer who realizes these men and women have a power I don't have. And I, I could resource this. I know what I could do with this if I had this power. So absolutely. I think that you, you see a, a pattern like that. Now, in any particular case, it's, it's more complex. Sure. But yeah, I think if you're looking at the forest and not the trees, that, I think that's right. I, I, I think some of that is peculiarly American, although it's, it's exported all around the world. I mean, I think there's part of that is it tends to be militant. It tends to be, and and to go back to the ministry you were talking about earlier, it's not an accident that almost all of their metaphors are military metaphors, right? Because it, it's to use your word from earlier, it is weaponized, right? And, and they, they understand and actually, the they weaponized life. Gandalf's staff. Oh, I know. <laughs> I saw that too. Which is, oh, I, I mean, I'm speechless to that. But to, yeah, if yeah, I yeah. if I came back to, well, I'm not speechless, but I'm going to choose not. To I'm going to choose to be speechless. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> what I've heard I'm, you I'm, say this before too. What the best thing that you can give somebody is saying nothing at times or something like that. I've heard you say that <laughs> that's, before. That's, yeah, that's right. That's, that's the word I think that needs to be spoken here. But if we come back to the wilderness story. I, I was talking with some friends uh, fairly recently about this point that I, I think that, you know, there's that line in the transition to Joshua's leadership, Israel enters the promised land. We're told that the manna ceased, the manna ceases. And what I think my tradition has missed your tradition is we see the manna as the miracle, right? Like the, we, we want the God who, who provides, but that's about immaturity, right? That's about our, the, the, the infancy of our faith and, and of our movement. And Israel's story is one in which the generation that saw all of those miracles is the generation that perishes in the wilderness, right? And this is what I mean by, if you look at the Christian tradition, I think what you see, so if you look at like the St. Bernard miracles or the, the, the healing house ministries or jump to the 20th century or early Pentecostal revivals in various places and the miracles that happened there, read those stories to their end. 
it, like, let's take Azusa Street for a moment, like the Azusa Street revival that breaks out in Los Angeles. We love to mythologize that event, right, as this outbreak of the spirit. But really, you're talking about, at the most, two and a half years. But everything that of revival, but what preceded that was just unbelievable suffering and resistance and difficulty for William Seymour. And then for two and a half years, you know, he's at the head of this revival, but he's in constant conflict with people, Charles Parham and, and others who want to take over the ministry. He's in constant, I mean, he, at, I think at two different times, he has to have his elders lock other ministers out of the mission because they've tried to take over the, the, the mission while, while Seymour was away. One of the women he worked closely with steals the mailing list and runs away and starts the paper again in her own name and using the mailing list. And, and, and then the back half of his life on the other side of those two and a half years is just a life of unbelievable sadness. And the, the, the congregation dwindles because Parham and, and other ministers when they, when they can't take over the mission, they just start other churches nearby. And I, I think it was 1912. Don't quote me on this, but I think it was 1912. There's an international conference of Pentecostals in Los Angeles and Seymour doesn't even get invited. Not, he not only doesn't speak, he doesn't get invited to sit on the stage or to come to the event. And so that, that story, I mean, this, this astounding outbreak, right. Of, of the spirit. But it's a two and a half, you know, in, in terms of Seymour's own life, it's, it's a tiny sliver of his life that is preceded by resistance and oppression and is followed by neglect. And I don't, I don't think it's right to say embitterment, but certainly some kind of, it's hard, hard to name, but he, you can tell that he's broken by the way that this did not become what he expected it to become. Right. Yeah. That he, he thought this latter day outpouring of the spirit was going to write things, was going to bring the church into unity and was going to open up to the kingdom of God. And it very much did not. Right. Like it, no, it did it, the opposite. It, it did the opposite. Right. Yeah. So I think if you, if we read our scripture carefully and if we read our history carefully, what we will find is that, what follows the outbreak of miracles is rarely what we would think it would be, if ever. So that should tell us something about what's happening in those moments, right? Because the way we, we mythologize it, you know, miracles are the breakthrough to the coming of the kingdom of God. Miracles are what establishes the authority of God and opens out on massive revival and conversion and the renewal of a community. But historically and biblically, that just isn't what happens. Right. right? Yeah. And if we just focus on the story of Jesus, yeah. like yeah, yeah. his miracles do not lead to revival, whatever that would mean. They get him killed. And so I, I, I don't think we can overstate the point even though I want to be as nuanced and careful as I can, like this imagination that says, you know, work miracles, perform deeds of power, that leads to revival and revival leads to renewal of society and renewal of society, 
is the coming of the kingdom of God. That is just BS. Like that, there's no historical grounding for that. There's no biblical grounding for that. I mean, you can piece a bunch of scriptures together to make it say that, but you can't read scripture well, and you can't read history well. Yeah. Sorry, I didn't uh, mean to go on forever, but I think no. you, you see you see where yeah, I'm. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, 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 no. You're the second time guest for the you know niche theological podcast. Probably for a only reason. second time. Guest you are. After yeah, this yeah. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Can't get anything by you. Um. So my own, my own. When I first kind of awoke to this, it's two and a half years ago, and I we we're before we hopped on. I was telling you a little bit of the story, but it came to the Middle East and where I am now and walked around for the first time and actually did it every day for six weeks or something like that. Uh, this refugee refugee camp from people who had suffered genocide uh, about five, five years previous to that and just listened to their stories and um, gave them clean water filters and solar lights because they have bad electricity and a lot of them don't have access to clean water and so on and so forth. And we would we would offer when we felt like we had an opportunity or we saw somebody with a clear physical ailment or whatever, um, or, you know, in our tradition, we would try and, and, and in air quotes for our listeners, get a word, um, you know, for these people. And, and we would offer to pray for them. And everything in my life, growing up, my ministry training, my pastoral experience, would have led me to the conclusion that if God is going to show up anywhere on planet Earth in power, it would be here. I mean, what other thing do we need to convince God that these are the people that need his hand of power? They've some, all of them have lost a, a loved one. They're separated or have been killed. They were starved. They were persecuted they were it, i mean it was just awful now they're living in these refugee camps and they have no way to go home and so i'm thinking to myself this this is going to be the easiest thing in my ministry life to be able to walk in and pray for the sick and see people healed because i mean the conditions the conditions are are right you know and uh i saw nothing for six weeks I, li I literally, I saw, I, I saw no visible sign of anything. And I, I kept it hidden from our group because our group was most, mostly young people at that time. And I was the oldest one. And so I kind of kept my struggles hidden because I didn't want to, I don't want to open up that can for everybody. Um, and, but when I came back, I really, really, really struggled with it. I said, what in the world? Uh, did not just happen, you know, what just happened, but did not just happen. And um, through a series of events, I won't go down to it, it led me to really try and go back and reread, particularly the prophets and the gospels, mm -hmm. uh, and then into the epistles a little bit. What do we mean by the power of God, the, the presence of God that changes things? And, and how do we, because it, if I believe that God is good and that God is powerful, what I just experienced requires one of two things. Either he has abandoned them, either or he didn't hear me for some reason that I can't explain, or the way that I'm viewing and understanding this is, is not correct. The way that I'm 
I'm understanding. And the clincher for me was the, the story of the two disciples on the road to Emmaus who were walking along and a stranger walks up and it's the resurrected Christ and he begins to teach to them. And they are having an encounter with the resurrected Christ and did not have eyes. And, and that's the kind of explicit point of the text is that their eyes were shut. Yeah. They did not have eyes to understand. Well, their eyes, they're kept. Shut. They're kept from yes. seeing him. Yeah, 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 which is a whole nother topic to get into. But it led me to think, like, to... what maybe, maybe my eyes are closed and I didn't realize it. And I need to, my, I need my eyes to be open to see what God has already always been doing. I just didn't have eyes to perceive what God has always already been doing in my very midst. And I, so let's start there and try and work towards it. So if, if power is not just God's ability to overcome everything and do miracles, what is his power? How do we, how do we come to a better understanding of what we mean by the power of God? Yeah. So let, let me say, don't let me get lost here. Cause I want to say three things. So just keep bumping me back to, okay, you said three, three things. things. Gotcha. So the, the last thing I want to talk about, which is the deep end of the pool is the nature of God. And I, and I, so I want to end there, but before I get to that earlier, you had mentioned that this spirituality that we're critiquing, that we're kind of holding up for question that it, it leaves us without being able to understand our lives. But I actually think its power is that it makes us think we're understanding things. That the reason that so many people believe it is that it actually makes sense of life, the wrong sense, but it organizes life neatly. This is one of the reasons I think racism is so persistent. I don't think racism persists primarily because of hate. I think racism persists primarily because of laziness and fear. Now, I think hatred's involved, but race is a way of structuring the world. It's a way of making assessments about people. So it, it allows me to look at someone's perceived nature and determine something about their personhood. So I can, I can see your skin. I can see the features of your face. I can see the texture of your hair. And I know already what you're capable of and what you're not capable of, right? Now that's, again, that's wrong, but it is really, really handy, right? If, if you can get people to buy into that, it makes judgments, again, they're all wrong judgments, but it makes judgments easy, right? So I think part of the power of this hyper charismatic power Christianity, quote unquote power, is that it makes sense of people's lives, right? So to think about your experience, that to go over and to see that, that spirituality would come back to, actually, the answers are very simple. Either you are in sin or lack faith, or they're besieged by demons. Right. Yeah. So it actually powers, simplifies, yeah. right? Yeah. So it simplifies the issue for you. So now the question is just, do you need more faith to go back again? Or are they just turned over to Satan, right? Like what you did is let the question kind of germinate in you. Like you, you let it, you let it die and you and spring to life as something else that's harder. So 
even though I, I agree with your point, I mean, I think that spirituality gets you out of touch with reality. I mean, I think the more you're bought into it, the less human you really are. You're, you're not capable of living with people or living with yourself. And in that sense, you are in a fantasy land. But the reason it's so attractive, one of the reasons it's so attractive, is that anything you face comes down to either the God, the devil, or me. And it's, it's very, very manageable, right? And I think that's part of the reason it's so attractive. And it, it makes discernment easier than it in fact is. It makes discernment seem easier than it in fact is, which, um, I, so I, I think that's a distinction worth, worth drawing there. The, the long-term effect though, I think is exactly what you said, which is people are forced out into a fantasy land. They live in a gap between reality and they're, they're not in touch with who they really are or who other people are. And it's, it's a depersonalizing, dehumanizing, Effect. Yeah, that's how you end up with Gandalf staff on stage. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Instead of thinking about racism as something person to person, we overcome. Right. It's something that happens in the spirit realm. And not entirely, but most of the time when people are talking about the spirit realm, they're talking about the projection, the realm of projection. It's a, it's a dissociative state psychologically. It's, it's not reality. And there, there's, a, there's a woman who she, she was at Chicago. I think she's at Stanford now who's written several books on charismatic spirituality. I think one of them is called when God talks back. And she talks about this effect that it, many people in this spirituality from a sociological perspective end up not in touch with the real world in, in fundamental ways. And I think that is, they would see that though, as a badge of honor, which I think is telling. The other thing I was going to say before I get to the deep end of the pool is Jesus tells this story about the soils, not a story, but a parable about the soil and the seed. And he talks about how there are some seeds that germinate quickly. You, you cast it in shallow ground and immediately the, there is fruit, right? The, the, the plants spring up. But then he says they don't last. They don't last because they have no root, right? They, they, they have no depth. The, the soil has no depth and th their roots cannot go deep. I think that the spirituality we're talking about celebrates quick responses and doesn't realize that quick responses are a bad sign, right? Like quick responses are a sign of shallowness, a, a lack of roots. And, and, and the other thing, and, and it works in reverse too. If I walk into a community and I get quick responses, what I'm doing there is shallow. So like when you went, when you went to see these people that you're living with now, if you had gotten some kind of big response, you know, people falling out in the spirit and blind eyes coming open and limbs growing back, it would have been sensational, but it would have been short lived and it would have been shallow because that's the nature of those things. Christian ministry is about long-term, deep processes, not about short-term, spectacular responses. So I think this is why our, the, the churches that have been formed by our spirituality are shallow, and they're going to be short-lived. Our tradition, what we know of our tradition, nobody will know in 50 years, in 100 years. It's not going to last. You don't think so? It's you not going to last. What's that? You don't, you don't think you, th you think it's 
50, 50, like one, two generations. And then what we've known, like yeah, it yeah, might yeah. reinvent itself. Yeah, it's yeah, already yeah. Reinventing, reinventing itself. itself. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. But what we've known, like the, sure. the spirituality I grew up with is I, I, I don't even know where my daughter would see it. Like, where would she find that? Right. Yeah, already in my lifetime. Yeah. It's vanishing. Now, yeah. some of those same people keep the same names, but they're reinventing themselves. Right. And, and in America, they mostly reinvent themselves as biblicist, evangelical conservatives. I mean, that's, that's what that's going to look like is already looking like. Um, so the kind of sensational spirituality we've celebrated, the worst thing that would happen is that we would get it because the, the, it's a short run, superficial, you know, one generation kind of spirituality. All right. So all that said, last thing, and I know we got to go. I think the fundamental conviction has to be God is always acting. We cannot continue to think this is where we need deep formation Christian theology. And it is God is not sometimes acting, sometimes not, sometimes acting in justice, sometimes in mercy. God is not responding to us depending on how intense we are, or how faithful we are. God is always being God and always fully being God, which means God's goodness is always brought to bear on the world. That's why there is a world at all. Right. The fact is, God's power is what's sustaining you in existence. God's power is what's holding you in being and holding time itself in being. And so the, the marks of God's power are all around us that we're able to even have this conversation, right? That that there is language, that there is a possibility of me speaking to you and you speaking to me. I mean, all of that is sustained by the power of God. What we need is a, a much better account of what it means for God to be God, and we need a better account of how God's way of being God and my way of being faithful, how those things interface. And I think that the miraculous is fitting for God and fitting for us only at certain times. You know, so there's this passage in the Gospels, many passages in the Gospels, where Jesus will say things like, or it will be said of Jesus, he could not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. That's not like some kind of restriction on his power. It's not like Jesus, you know, their lack of faith was his kryptonite. Yeah. It's that if he performs miracles, people who are not ready for them, it just damages them. It doesn't, it doesn't do them any good. Right. And so I think it's really important to realize that what we do is we try to live in alignment with Christ, speaking up to God about what we think should happen, confident that we're never going to talk God into being better than he would have been otherwise. Like, I'm never going to convince God to be gentler or wiser or more generous or more compassionate than he would have been if I hadn't spoken up. But what is happening in my prayer and in my practice, in my care for my neighbor is hopefully the world is coming around into alignment with what God always wants for us. And so a lot of this is about timing. You know, so when I hear your story about, you know, praying for these people and not seeing anything, what that says to me is because you're called to a long-term work there, 
this you weren't there to walk in and see a couple of miracles and go on and tell everybody else about the power of God. That's what we end up doing. We, we go and have these crusades. We see something, I mean, think about the word crusade crusades. We go and see, <laughs> you know, this or that happen. And then we, then we, we live off of our, the reputation we make for ourselves by having those kinds of quote unquote results stories and Instagram and all that. Yeah, absolutely. But there's no long-term work in those people's lives. Right. Right. And what you've been given is something far deeper, which is a care for them as people, a readiness to learn their language, literally and figuratively, a readiness to live among them long-term, to learn their history, to, to regard what they regard as holy, and so on and so on and so on. That only God could bring about. Yeah. Any God can do a miracle because the world is so filled with strange things. Right? Yeah, even like I mean Simon the Simon the sorcerer you already brought him up was regarded absolutely. as a man of great power. I mean the text that's the word that they used to describe him. Absolutely. All you I mean people are doing stuff that we can't explain all the time. Like I just I don't think we should be nearly as impressed with the miraculous as we think we should be. Like okay, so what? I mean if here's here's the story from Jesus, right? The disciples come back and say, Jesus, we, we saw all these people casting out demons and, and they were doing it, but not in your name. And so we stopped them. And Jesus says, don't stop them. Right? Don't stop them. Whoever's with us, whoever's not against us is with us. And then, of course, in another place, he says, whoever is not with us is against us. But that just compli complicates things more. But his point is, listen, whatever the source of these things are, ultimately, if something good is happening for someone. God is at work. Any good thing that happens in this world, God is the source of that. Now, how God brings it about, we can't always explain that. But if, if that Muslim prophet or that Buddhist monk or that atheist you know, midwife has a prophetic word that brings about something good in somebody's life, I say, that's Jesus. Whether they realize it or not, that's Jesus. But if I just jump from miracle to miracle, as if that somehow proves something, then all I, I'm not committed to God. I'm not committed to the God of the gospel. I'm not committed to the God of Jesus. I'm just committed to whatever I can't explain. And that is not mystery. That's just my ignorance. Right? Like, like, ultimately, God just becomes the mirror image of my lack of understanding. And that's, that's not what it means to be Christian. All right. So I went on too long there. No, 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 no. You're good. Let's land the plane here. What I, what I ended up settling on after my working through all of this and what we've been kind of circling around a little bit is what I think Paul comes out and explicitly says both in Romans one and then really clearly in first Corinthians one through three. And that is Absolutely. when he wants to define the power of God. He explicitly says in both those texts and, and in other places, but I think those are probably the best two examples, that the power of God is the cross. And it, yes. this is especially comes clear in because it's just a longer passage in 1 Corinthians 1 through 3, really those whole three chapters. And he's continually working through this. He's trying to show uh, the, the church in, in Corinth that the cross is foolishness and its weakness 
if I could paraphrase, don't be deceived. It's actually God's wisdom and his power. It just looks like foolishness and weakness to us because we're still blinded by the principalities and powers and such of this of this earth. And and I mean, if we just take a step back even and think about what we all know to be true about Good Friday and about Easter Sunday, it's that this is the place in which God overcame sin and death and the principalities and powers, that his victory looks like the cross. And so yes. what, how do we as individuals, I'm thinking more as a community of people, how do we begin to reorient our perception of God's power in our life? The, if you, we wanted to say it a different way, the work of the spirit, because I think those would be synonymous, the yes. work of the spirit in our life being not in the shape of healing signs and wonders, although I believe in all those things but primarily in, the, in, a, in a cruciform shape, in the shape of a cross, that what God's power, when I want to see God acting powerfully, what I should expect to see is not blind eyes and deaf ears opening. What I should expect to see is cruciform love and forgiveness and mercy and Absolutely. hospitality. Un unpack that a little bit for us. And even if you have some thoughts on 1 Corinthians 1 through 3 or, or Romans 1, on, mm. on how the cross is central to, I think, if you agree, our understanding of God's power at work manifest in, in the world. Oh, absolutely. First of all, yeah, I, I, I completely agree. I mean, I think the cross and the message about the cross. Yeah, it's the word the of the, of it's the word of the, of the cross. Yeah. Right. That, that is the, that Paul's not ashamed of that word. He says in Romans, and then in Corinthians, that it's the gospel that is the power. Right? I mean, he, he repeats this notion, right, that the gospel is the power. And then he says, I'm careful about the words I use so that I don't empty the cross of its power. Right. So some, some of the power he's talking about here is the, the effectiveness of the message of the cross to break us free from lies. So, so the power of God is... I think we have to make this distinction between the power of God as we're thinking of it and not you and me, but our tradition and the power of the message of the cross. So what Paul is saying about the power of the message of the cross is that that the effectiveness, the ability of that message to bring change is the only message that's true to what God's power actually is like, right? So you've got the, the power of God, the creative power of God that creates from nothing like Theologically, we have to insist that God doesn't change anything. God creates, sustains, redeems, perfects, consummates, but God's word doesn't bring about change like we think about it. It brings about creation. Like So the, the technical terms here are God does not cause, he creates, and only God can do that. Only God can speak something into being and speak it into perfection once it is in being. So the God does not cause God's, God creates. And there's a, there's a really helpful distinction between cross resurrection and cause and effect. So we only know cause and effect cross and resurrection is not cause and effect. It's God's creative power and perfecting power at work in the world. But the message of the gospel does have an, an effect, but it's the only message 
that has the effect of revealing what God's power is actually like, which is to say, it looks like kenosis is one of the, you know, one of the terms emptying. It looks like service. It looks like a humiliating death. It looks like love cast out for the sake of those it's interceding for like that, that message is powerful, right? But it's powerful precisely because it, it bears witness to the nonviolent, non-invasive, creative love and power of God, right? So I think that we have to keep coming back to that. Uh, Bono, there's, there's, if anyone's listened this long into the conversation, I, I hope they everyone will read what Dietrich Bonhoeffer says about the weakness of God. And there, there's a certain kind of new movement, a hip kind of pop movement that talks about God's weakness and in a different forms. One, there's a kind of process theology form of it. And there's a, a kind of Christian atheism form of it or atheism form of it. But I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about Bonhoeffer's kind of Lutheran Cyrillian account of the God who lets himself be pushed out of the world, be, be, be left hanging. And Bonhoeffer says, it's only that God who can actually help us. It's the God who is weak, the God who suffers, and the God who is killed who can actually help us. So I want to try to thread this needle here. I don't think we should say that God is powerless. We should just insist that God's power is not what we in our flesh imagine it to be. His, his power is not just our power times infinity. Exactly. A hundred percent. Right. Exactly. And it's not a power to bring about the things we want because that's violation, right? Magic is the, is the, the lassoing of power to bring about the effect I want, but God, God's not useful in that way. God, not only is God unwilling, God, we can't use God in that way. In that sense, God is powerless. In that sense, God is weak, but that weakness is more powerful than the powers of this world, right? That's the point of first Corinthians is the cross is not God momentarily giving up his powers. The cross is the enactment of the power of God. And if you can, if we can get our hearts and minds around that, the cross is not God saying, I'll be powerless for your sake. The cross is a revelation of the power of God. And the message of the cross, rightly preached, if we, if we don't over-talk it, if we don't spin it too much, then the message of the cross brings that power to bear in the world and in ways that free us up from the lies and free us up from what our fears and, and the laziness that keeps us from being truthful about ourselves and, and our neighbors. So I think that that's the critical shift to make. Yeah, and, and to me, that's that should be good news because, and this is exactly what Paul actually goes on to say in first Corinthians is he says, look at yourselves. None of you are very smart. None of right. you are very rich. None of you are very strong. And it's precisely because of that, that God has chosen you, the weak and the foolish things of this world to shame the wise and the powerful, because that's precisely what his power looks like coming into the world. His Absolutely. power coming into the world 
doesn't look like the most powerful king times infinity. It That's looks right. like a baby on a manger and baby in a manger and a, and a man on a tree. This, that's, right. that's what you just said. That is the revelation of the power of God. The, the cross, I think one way we could say it, and maybe we can end here then. So the cross is not what God is willing to suffer or give up in order to save us. The cross right. is the revelation of how God saves us in all of who God is. That is his glory. I mean, that's why in John's gospel, you know, his hour, the hour in which he's lifted up is, is the hour of the, of the cross. And, and it's, it's fascinating in Philippians when Paul is praying for what he, what he wants. It's not to go and be with God, although he wants that. But even more than that, he wants to be like God in Christ. And so he, he's, he's certain that this is going to be given to him. And he says that what I want is to know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. And he says it in that order. I want to know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, because what's happening in the power of the resurrection is an ability to enter into the suffering in such a way that you're changing it. So this, this is, this is, I think the fundamental difference. If you think of God as the power to change the world, to make the world what you want it to be, then suffering is always a problem to be overcome. Like you, you, if you're suffering, it's because you haven't found a way to tap into the power of God to alter that, alter it for yourself or even for others. Right. But that's not how God's power works. And I don't think God wants us to suffer. I don't think God wants anyone to suffer, but I do think God wants us to be with the suffering in such a way that we alter what it means to suffer. And we are with them in such a way that their, their humanity is brought into fullness, brought up into what God intends for them. And that's why Paul says, I want the power of his resurrection so I can abide in these sufferings in ways that are true to Jesus. Yeah. You would think it would be the other way around. It, right. Our, well, we would tell it that way. We would tell right? it that way. So we, we say things like, you know, we preach sermons like it's Friday, but Sunday's coming telling people that, whatever your Friday is, whatever your trouble is, Sunday's coming. God's going to get you out of it. But he isn't. Like, he isn't. But we need to say something else. We need to say Sunday has come so you can live on Friday, right? Like, right. Sunday is here so you can bear your cross. You can enter into, like Colossians 1, where Paul says, you know, I make up in my body what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, the church, right? Paul's entire life, and, and he says this in Philippians, like, I could depart and be with Christ, but it would not be good for you. And what would be good for you is for me to remain, and I know what I'm going to do, because he's he's choosing to be like Christ, not just to be with Jesus. I was thinking about this to be very personal and transparent for just a moment, I, I was, I had this weird kind of experience the other day where I, I, I felt like I was about to die. No need to go into the details, but like, it was like, uh, I felt like I was coming up against the end of my life in this weird way. And I was praying and the, the thought came to me, what would you want your last thought to be before you die? And again, I'm in prayer, kind of communing with God. And I'm like, well, I guess, God, I should think of you last. And the question that immediately came back to me is, 
What do you think my last thought was? And I'm, I'm still not entirely sure what, what to do with this experience, but what, I, what I'm impressed by, what, what's impressed on me is this sense that God does not want to be the focus of our attention. God wants to be the source of our attention. And we, the spirituality we've engendered is if we make God the source of our attention, I mean, the, the focus of our attention, maybe he will give us uh, his powers, right? Like if, if we devote ourselves to God enough, maybe the, the bargain will be, oh, now, because you've given me this attention, I'll give you the ability to do whatever you want. But I don't think that's, I think worship is about God, but this God we worship will never let the attention stay on himself. Like he will immediately direct our attention back to the least of these. And that's why Blumhorn, whom I mentioned earlier, he says, every Christian has to have two conversions from the world to God and from God back to the world. And I think our spirituality, it, it hasn't made either of those turns really. We're, we're coming to God, but still with a very worldly heart and mind. And we've yet not yet taken the turn back to the world where we realize this is not about changing things. That's, I mean, yes, same things need to be changed. And I'm rambling at, at some ways, no, but no, no, there's so good, much yeah. in my heart right now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the things that hit me a few weeks ago is I've grown up around people who will challenge things that everyone says cannot be changed. Death, for instance. I mean, we'll, someone dies, we'll wait days before we bury them because we're waiting on God to resurrect them. So we'll fight things like that, death, cancer, mental illness, what, you know, name, whatever it seems insurmountable, we feel confident we can pray about that. But racism and poverty, you know, spousal abuse, corruption in the ministry, like those things, we think we have to live with that. The poor you have with you always. So we'll, I was literally just going to say, I was literally just going to say that. Yeah, the poor will have you'll have with you always. Yeah. And how, how sick is it that the things we could change, we won't. And the things that are not going to change, we're waiting on God to fix. Right. And something is deeply wrong when I, I'm more concerned with God raising the dead, who even if he were to raise them would die again than I am with dealing with poverty and racism and marital abuse and the lack of care for the homeless and prison industrial complex and right on down the list. What I don't want to start a list of sins because it's going to make it me sound like I've only seen some of them, but all of that sickness that's in the world that we can change, like we can change it. We can bring water to those who don't have water. Like we can, we have the ability to change so much in this world and we won't do it while we pray for God to do things that are not going to change and apparently shouldn't change. So yeah, I'll just stop there. I'm uh, yeah. I'll just stop talking. Yeah. yeah no, no, no. You're good. You're good. I think, I think that alone probably rocketed us up to the 872nd spot of uh, i have a feeling it's gonna have the opposite effect but yeah (laughs) no it's all good uh we'll we'll stop we'll stop there i um man there's a lot there's um we could have two or three more 
hour long conversations just off of off of some of that. But um, I, I hope this does give some people, whoever is is still listening, some something to think about when we think about God's power and how we can participate with his power in the world, how he has empowered each of us individually and his communities to be his body in the world, to be his hands, his feet, to give water to those who are thirsty and visit those in prison and minister to the sick and the dying and the poor. Um, and, and hopefully, hopefully we can move towards an understanding that that maybe that's maybe sitting with a refugee in his tent, even when it seems like God is not there is the power of God in their midst because someone is being attended to who was left alone previously. And um, so I, I appreciate you coming on. Thank you so much. And uh, absolutely. Hopefully, I love it as always. Yeah. yeah hopefully. Grateful well, for you. hopefully we can, hopefully we can do it again sometime. Yeah. So I'll, I'll shoot you. Stay in touch. And don't like, forget to send me the email. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, I will. I will. I'll, I'll shoot it to you after this and I'll, uh, we can do it again, maybe in a few months or something like that. And you can help us climb the leaderboard some more. <laughs> Thanks, right. brother. It's good to talk to you. Yep. Good talking to you. Bye -bye. Thanks.